the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir. Good afternoon. Welcome. It's a Thursday, just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. And Craig Roberts, once again, delighted to welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. We are here each Monday through Friday from 5 until 7 p.m., addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Boy, we've got a pretty jam-packed program for you today. A little bit later on in tonight's show, Dan Beltran will join us for an update on the week on Wall Street. Lots going on, all that gossip related to GameStop, and people thinking they can turn a quick buck. Could be potentially dangerous territory if you decide to, uh, what's the phrase, uh, <laughs> bet the rent money, wouldn't encourage that. So if you are someone who is perilously close to retirement, as maybe the, the um, earlier percentile of the baby boomer generation, those born between 1946 and 1964, and you're wondering about the road ahead, the economy, and maybe there has been some roadblocks in relationship to your ability to continue contributing to your IRA or your 401k. What's one to do? How do you go about amassing the critical mass necessary to make it across the goal line? We'll talk about that. Dan Beltran joins us a little bit later on tonight. And, of course, with Petucci and Associates. Also joining us, the man that perhaps has told us more about ourselves than, well, many others out there. Maybe perhaps in terms of understanding who we are as a nation and people, he has done one of the best jobs ever. Dr. George Barna, pollster, joins us. He is now the research director of the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And as much as we've spent a lot of hand-wringing over the great divide in America today. Dr. Barn is going to share some results of a recent survey he's conducted that gives us some insight that we are perhaps not as far apart on many key policy issues as one might think. We'll get to that conversation coming up later on tonight. You know, speaking of Dr. George Barna, one of the big reveals down through the years of his fine research is to get a better understanding as to the trends taking place within the church today and over recent decades. And and certainly, if you look at things like uh, measurements such as church attendance and membership in the United States from its peak post-World War II, where, get this, 76% of American adults were active in church membership and church attendance to some of the more recent numbers, 2019, kind of discount 2020 for obvious reasons, but 2019, we find that that number has dropped precipitously, where 
Two generations ago, 76% of Americans identified and were active in their churches. Today, the number is less than 50%. Now, the implications, to be sure, are serious. Reasons are perhaps not altogether surprising. Some say church is less relevant. Others say it's less engaging. Others, the preaching, less effective. The research has uncovered a number of important reveals, and perhaps the most overwhelming common factor is this, a significant shift from scriptural focus to a more social focus, meaning as much Bible teaching out of Sunday morning service today can be found as the average Tony Robbins workshop. And if you've ever been to one or are familiar with Anthony Robbins, you'll know that it's long on platitudes and very short, if at all, on scriptural teaching. Sadly, that's describing more and more of the church today. And so is it any wonder that people who are hungry for God's word go on a search to find it, where his word is proclaimed in total, unadulterated, and then people are allowed to apply that word to enrich their lives and to follow Christ as his disciples. We're always thrilled when we find churches like that, and even more excited when we can add them to the list of KFAX family of programmers, as we have just such a church that will be joining us with a brand new broadcast here on KFAX starting this coming Sunday at 7 p.m., and we're pleased to have join us now the senior pastor of Bethel Baptist Church, Pastor Greg Tomlinson. And Pastor Tomlinson, thanks so much for taking time to be with us tonight. Well, you're welcome so very much. Glad to be uh, here and part of the family of KFAX. We are uh, looking forward to the inaugural broadcast of your pulpit ministry, and uh, folks will get an opportunity to learn more about the ministry of Bethel Baptist Church um, in Morgan Hill a little bit later on uh, in our conversation. But meanwhile, share us, if you would, Pastor, a bit of your your heartbeat, your passion. I, I noted some of the challenges that the church in America is facing today and I know from visiting with you and hearing your messages that you have a very passionate, strong heartbeat for the central importance of preaching Christ crucified and preaching the unadulterated word. And I suppose, therefore, it's no surprise as we see such an alarming degree of scriptural illiteracy today and some of this sort of feel-good preaching, as I suggested earlier, is it any wonder that we're perhaps seeing a church that's not as effective as she can and should be? Oh, absolutely. The biggest challenge is people aren't really opening up the Bible and reading the Word and walking through it uh, paragraph by paragraph and verse by verse. And that's my most the, the what I want people to get from the Bible is not just an understanding of what God wants us to do, but if you are a Christian, the ability to actually defend your faith. In other words, how, why do you believe what you believe? How do you know it's true? And so we go verse by verse to express what God wants for people to understand and how to apply it to our lives. It's crucial to surviving in this world. And not surprising, perhaps, when, when non-believers encounter believers and that, that conversation gets started and people ask, well, 
tell me what you believe. And they might share uh, an item or two from the pillars of faith, be it Christ's virgin birth or um, uh, maybe the, 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 the fact that uh, the, the, the Lord was born in a manger, things of this sort, right? But then you dive into, well, give me the reasons why you believe. Help me understand how you drew these conclusions and how this has become real in your life. And sadly, a lot of believers then come up short. They just say, well, you know, uh, that's what I read as a kid, and and, uh, I don't really know why I believe it, I just do. And and I I have to wonder if that shortcoming of a failure to understand how to give a solid apologetic to a person who is non-believer, to someone that is searching, uh, is really, I think, a significant failure and and maybe one of the things, as I suggested earlier, that is contributory towards stunting the growth of the church that so many of us just believe, we just don't understand why. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of the things we often talk about at Bethel is you take a look at all of the religions in the world, and all of them are looking for answers from, uh, you know, things to like, where did we come from? Where are we going? What is our purpose? And and we're, you know, what's happening with us. And as we take a look at all the world religions, the only faith in the world that I have come across that answers all of those questions, but most importantly, the question dealing with justice, especially right now, we're living in a community in a world that is looking for justice, demanding justice, but at the same time, they're wanting a sense of mercy. And so only the Christian faith can satisfy that desire for justice, where the guilty actually pay the penalty for their wrongdoings, but at the same time, a place of mercy where our wrongdoings can be, and it's not really overlooked, but they can be um, treated in a satisfactory fashion before God. And that only takes place in the cross. Jesus took the penalty for our sins, and as a result of that, we do not stand condemned from them anymore. He took the condemnation. And it's that same act of the cross of Christ that uh, allows God, in a very real sense, to extend mercy to those who have faith in Christ and those who trust in, in the Lord. There's no other faith, no other religion, no other system in the world that can satisfy both of both of those requirements at the same time. Um, so to me, what what's happened is I look at what's happening in this world, and I try to make sense of it. Why, why are we where we're at? And I can you can trace it all back to Adam, where he chose to uh, neglect God's word. And it's, well, how do we fix things? Well, that has to be a deal with the cross. There's an answer and a way to fix the problems that we have in this world, and it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is found in the cross, because he took our punishment and at the same time satisfied God's justice and provided a pathway of extending uh, mercy. Um, and there's, no, there's nothing else like, else like it in the entire world. Do you think this is a unique juncture in history for the church? And I ask that question because 
a lot of folks in the wake of COVID-19 and many of the restrictions related to gathering together and so forth kind of take the glasses half uh, empty approach and say, well, you know, we've we got restrictions at so many level, it's making the, le the church less effective. But I have to wonder if maybe there's a different viewpoint on this, the viewpoint that might suggest that rather than the glass being half empty, it's half full, meaning that this is a unique opportunity for the church and those who have a personal relationship with Christ to be able to share their faith, witness to others, and give people a sense of hope at a time when we are surrounded by so much death, so much despair, so much hopelessness, and so many people, Pastor Tomlinson, who perhaps for the very first time are asking the important questions about, well, what happens to me when I die? Where do I go? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? Is there a God? If there is a God, what does my relationship to that God look like? And I think this, in my viewpoint, is a rare and special opportunity for this generation in the wake of the horror of COVID-19 to really be able to proclaim the good news of the grace that God has shown towards us, and most importantly, the good news that that grace is available to all who would be willing to come and repent. Do you see it that way? Do you see it as a glass-half-full approach? Well, I mean, I, I can definitely see that as, uh, as well. I mean, I normally don't think in terms of um, glasses half-full, half-empty. Um, what I look at and see is it is really a time and an opportunity where the people of of Christ can really stand out and make a distinct difference. When we live in a culture and a community where people are trying to huddle down and, and keep as far away from others that they can, where we have people of God who take seriously the commands of Christ to go out and, in a sense, be the gospel, to truly be a way to reach out to those around us and say, you know, we can help you with your, your problems, you know, wh whether it's uh, food and, or um, getting medications, getting to the doctors. We can be there to help you, but at the same time, for those who trust in the Lord to say, the most important thing for me is to be in fellowship with God and God's people and find ways that we can... Um, pursue growing in the wisdom and the knowledge of the Lord, um, that we can really stand out and be seen as being different, not just following the, the, the path of everybody else, but see, being seen as people who are willing to stand boldly for the cause of Christ in his call to uh, minister to people, his call to seek after him and his word, that we can be an example of the very presence of, of Christ and the Savior, the Savior of Christ in this world. Um, it, it, we can be creative on how to do that um, and encountering, uh, trying to find ways to encounter people and engage them with the words of God and uh, just be seen as being committed, committed to a cause that is not political in nature, but transcends politics, transcends cultures, transcends everything that is of this world. And it's, we're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and what he calls us to do. 
Um, that's mm. what I see as one of the things that we can be doing. And of course, it is so critical, as I suggest at this this time, when so many people are asking questions, that we as believers can be there to point the way. Um, that we should be those who study to show ourselves approved, and as Paul exhorted us to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within to a lost, fearful, and dying world. We're delighted to have a new broadcast beginning this Sunday at 7 p.m. here on KFAX, featuring the uh, teaching ministry of Pastor Greg Tomlinson, senior pastor at Bethel Baptist Church in Morgan Hill. We invite you to make it a point to tune in Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. Be a great time of, of worship, study in the Word, and then, of course, um, Pastor Tomlinson's expository preaching from God's Word. More details, by the way, about the ministry, you can simply go online to BBCMH. Think Bethel Baptist Church, Morgan Hill, BBCMH.org. And again, the broadcast, The Bible Stands, Sundays at 7 p.m. right here on KFAX. And we're delighted to have the teaching ministry of Pastor Greg Tomlinson here on KFAX starting this Sunday. 21 minutes after the hour, 5 o'clock, let's get you an update on traffic. And as we do so, we'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Let's get a look at what's going on in the world of money. We've seen pretty good news on the uh, the major indices four straight days in a row. Can the trend continue? Let's get a look at what happened. Joining me now is Dan Beltran, Premier Advisor with Vitucci and Associates. Well, Dan, how did we wrap up the day on this Thursday? Craig, the Dow finished at 31,055. The NASDAQ finished up at 13,777. And the S&P positive as well at 3,871. Wow, certainly good news. And uh, for the NASDAQ, that's a bit of a new record, isn't it? I think uh, no doubt some of this being buoyed by um, a little bit of encouraging news in the unemployment data. I think so. Yeah, the NASDAQ has just been, uh, you know, flirting with highs and, and making highs for, for quite some time now. Um, you know, tech's been the trend, and many think that's going to continue to be the case. It's, it's just really something else when you look at the dispersion between an index like the NASDAQ and then other sectors that have just been on the, uh, on the other end of things like energy. And, um, no, it's, uh, it, you know, to say we're not going to see more highs uh, in the coming weeks. And, of course, one thing that can help to buoy that, in addition to seeing a, a, a downtick in the unemployment numbers, which we hope and pray <laughs> certainly continues, but I, I would wonder from your perspective, Dan, do you think some of the talk in relationship to additional COVID relief money as well as the increase in the number of vaccinations as we kind of begin to see the uh, uh, the edge of the forest, so to speak, here related to the COVID pandemic is helping to buoy this market? Yeah, there's no question COVID's been the wild card. It's been number one. It's been top of mind with everybody. Uh, all things, you know, the stock market are looking at COVID. And, uh, you know, the vaccination is obviously coming out and 
you know, the different age bands are, are getting in there and, and getting pricked. And, you know, all this from a market perspective bodes well because the pent up demand will eventually be able to get back out into the public, start to spend money again. And then obviously, uh, the, the hope is that that unemployment rate continues to come down. A lot of the numbers we're seeing there are in the service sector. And, you know, that's, that's a lot of the pent up demand there is going out to eat, going out to, uh, you know, traveling and doing the things that we've been waiting so long to be able to do. Boy, and so many of those sectors, as you point out, have been so badly hammered between the travel sector, hospitality sector, um, certainly restaurants, things of that sort. And uh, I think we 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 can't get this uh, this pandemic behind us fast enough. Give me your sense in terms of where you see things headed for investors in kind of the medium range here. Excitement, certainly with the numbers, as we suggest, and then some of this frothiness to the point of being crazy and 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 overheated uh, and i i know that you and pat uh, seldom if ever recommend people in buying individual stocks and of course i guess that means that taking a look at what's happened with game stock a uh, game over the last couple of weeks is probably a word not to the wise but a, a word of warning to a danger be careful you know GameStop is uh <laughs> the it's in a whole other world. There's there's only been a, a handful of situations like that that have been publicized over the years. But, you know, one of the things we want to make sure is that, uh, you know, folks understand the difference between investing and speculating. When, when you're throwing money at GameStop as the, the price goes up and down by 100 points each hour, uh, that is speculation. When you put together a long-term investment strategy that's proven and time-tested and purposeful, that's an investment strategy. So a stark difference between the two. But in terms of where we see the market going, you know, it, this pent-up demand, the, the, the lowering of the unemployment figures, uh, you know, that bodes well for market. You know, there's a lot of talk about stimulus. That bodes well. Uh, you put all those together, you keep interest rates low, uh, in a sense, you know, and, and there's going to be a certain amount of investors out there that just don't have any other choice than to stay invested in the market because the alternatives just aren't as, as attractive. Makes perfect sense. And of course, uh, you know, staying the course and making sure that you have a strategy in place, even during times when we see, again, the sort of the frothiness here, excitement, and we know that the markets can pivot on a dime and it can be happy days are here again today and tomorrow we're singing woe is me. That said, for retirees or folks that are heading and working toward retirement that don't really have a strategy in place, just take a moment, if you would, Dan, and tell us how you and the team at Vitucci and Associates can be of help. Well, first off, uh, you have to reach out, and, and we're happy to, to have a conversation with you, uh, an initial complimentary conversation, and, you know, really figure out what work uh, is there to, to be done. And, you know, it's a top-down approach at the beginning we'll take a an inventory of your assets your income streams and you know we'll look big picture and, and figure out you know are you looking to be able to run a surplus or a deficit based on where you are right now and assuming uh, reasonable assumptions in terms of inflation taxes investment returns so on and so forth 
And during that initial meeting, we can really figure out, you know, what areas you have that we're able to help in. And, you know, from that point on, uh, you know, the art is in drilling down, figuring out uh, in, in a much more detailed manner what it is that you need out of each of those areas and how to make your overall plan work uh, together. And, of course, if folks want to take advantage of a consultation, an opportunity to kind of sit down, get a sense of where you're at today, whether or not, in fact, the way you've designed your portfolio has you on track for your goals toward retirement, or maybe it's just uh, too aggressive or perhaps not aggressive enough. Understanding the difference, that's key. Now, where do you begin? Well, a simple toll-free call to Vitucci and Associates can help you set up that complimentary appointment with Dan Beltran, Pat Vitucci, or a number member, another member of the Vitucci and Associates advisory team. Simply call toll-free triple eight plan wise. That's eight 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 P L A N W I S E. Or if you prefer, you can easily schedule your appointment online. You can even have your appointment online if you'd rather not travel. Just simply go to don'tinvestandforget.com. That's don'tinvestandforget.com. And our thanks to Dan Beltran, Premier Advisor with Vitucci and Associates for that market update. 532 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to talk about a topic that we're all intimately familiar with and probably all at one level or another, certainly at one time or another in our lives, equally chagrined by and embarrassed by. Remember that passage it's early on in Genesis. I'm going to do this from memory, I think around Genesis 310 or somewhere in that neighborhood um, where... Adam and Eve have now partaken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They have discovered their nakedness, and in a response to their shame, they have hid themselves from God. Shame, in some ways, can be a healthy mechanism. Unfortunately, shame, in other ways, can move us away from others that can help us and encourage us. And as we see in the case of this passage in uh, Genesis 3:10 and following, that, that shame can move us away from God. That certainly was the case of the experience of Adam and Eve in the garden. A lot of believers today are crippled by shame. They are paralyzed by shame. They have a damaged view of themselves, and as a result... Um, have to deal with that damaged view as at least even impacting how they see or understand how God sees them, literally standing as a barrier between themselves and a healthy relationship with God. Let's talk about this matter of shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson joins us, new book out by InterVarsity Press called The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves, as I say, newly published by InterVarsity Press. And Dr. Thompson, great to have you on the program with us tonight. Thanks, Craig. It's great to be with you. Let's talk about shame for a moment. We, we naturally think, even as we read that passage in Genesis, that shame is a bad, awful, terrible thing that has terrible consequences. But isn't there a degree, a certain fashion in which shame can be 
helpful? If, for example, if I if I were to back into a lit stove without the benefit of pain to tell me I'm burning, there would be nothing to communicate to myself to step away from the stove so that I don't do further damage to my body. Is there a manner in which shame to a degree could function like that, could be helpful to us if if, if it's responded to in a healthy fashion, both emotionally and theologically? I think you're right. I think that uh, not only from a, from a biblical perspective, but from what we know from uh, just living in families, and let alone what we know from a neurobiological perspective, that the experience of shame is common, it's normal, uh, we experience it early and often as human beings, actually far earlier in our lives than most of us would even imagine that we encounter it, given how it functions in our brain. Uh, but it's also true that uh, the, the real problem that we encounter with this phenomenon has a lot more to do with what we uh, then do in our response to it. It's not even so much that shame in and of itself and our experience of it is the problem as much as what we then do very quickly in response to it. And we see from the biblical narrative that the response of the people who first felt that uh, was not to turn to the other, was not to seek help, not to seek connection from God or from each other, but was, as you've already mentioned, what the, the response was to hide, the response was to turn away. And unfortunately, uh, this then becomes a fairly common practice that we not only experience, but in our response to shame that is so unhelpful, we then also tend to propagate this, we reinforce it in our own lives, and then we tend to spread that, because when we carry shame around with us, uh, it becomes um, like this undercurrent of emotional tenor and tone that is constantly coloring a lot of our interactions. And so we don't just, as we most commonly do, shame ourselves, even quietly, uh, but we also then end up reacting and doing that very thing to other people, uh, oftentimes without our even being consciously aware that we're doing it. And the irony about this is that there is that sense when, when we um, are aware of our own shame, um, we feel vulnerable. I mean, I, I, that's certainly the way I would interpret Adam and Eve's reaction by covering themselves up. They felt vulnerable. Maybe that's a stretch, so you, you can correct me on that. But, but there's interesting something there because that vulnerability, if it reveals a defect in ourselves, such as in the case of Adam and Eve, where they essentially broke God's single law, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they did so. They suddenly realized their shame. They were feeling vulnerable. But instead of losing that, using that vulnerability to, to open themselves up before God, and be able to find forgiveness, they, they suddenly had the reaction to hide themselves. Do we do the same? Well, we certainly do the same, and I think that your uh, use of the word vulnerability is really helpful. Uh, we talk about this a fair bit in the book, um, and I think that, you know, one thing that we point to is, is this notion that the, uh, we, we often will talk about feeling vulnerable, uh, and the connotation is that it's a bad thing. Like, we don't like to feel vulnerable. Um, what's striking about the biblical text, though, is that it's made very plain in the second chapter of Genesis, preceding that little nasty interaction that the woman and the snake and the man have, that when the man and the woman were created, at the very end of chapter 2, the woman and the man, the man and the woman were naked and they were unashamed. And that notion of being naked is not just a description. In the Hebrew, it's not just a description of their physicality. It is also a way of stating the fact that they were then vulnerable. 
And the reality is that, you know, most of us go through life working really hard to not be vulnerable, working really hard not to allow ourselves to feel like we find ourselves in those places, when the reality is that we are vulnerable creatures. Uh, It doesn't take much to get us sick. It doesn't take much to run us over and break our ankle. There's a lot about who we naturally are that make us vulnerable. Now, what's striking about the second chapter of Genesis and that comment is that in our vulnerability, in the first couple's vulnerability, they were also unashamed. And one of the things that we see in terms of the trajectory and intention of the creation narrative is this notion. And the irony now as we see that we do our most powerful creative work as human beings when we are quite literally naked and unashamed. We would say, I mean, I don't know many things that are more creative than the act of sexual encounter that then leads to the birth of a baby. Both of those things, between a man and a woman, and then the woman delivering a baby, both those things require nakedness and are really quite messy, require nakedness, that vulnerability, but are also very, very powerfully creative. When we are able to acknowledge that we are vulnerable, and now what we would say is that vulnerability means that in order for me to flourish as an individual, I actually need, because of my vulnerability, I need the other person in my life to be helpful for me. I need your assistance. In fact, we would say from a neuroscience standpoint, we flourish in accordance with the creation mandate in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when text tells us that God says, let us make mankind in our image, that we are made as plural beings. We are made as people who were intended for each other. And therefore, in Genesis 2, 18, when he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. In fact, because we are so vulnerable. It is in our places of vulnerability that we actually then find ways to be most powerfully creative when we are unashamed. I suggest in the book that evil is not using shame then and or now. Evil is not using shame simply as a way to make us feel bad about ourselves. But it is using shame to dismantle, to deconstruct, to destroy the entire creation. Not just how we feel about ourselves, but how we behave in relationships, and then what we do to each other and to the rest of the created universe. If you just joined our conversation today, a visit with Dr. Kurt Thompson, a look at the soul of shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. Now, when we come back after a brief timeout, we're going we're gonna to turn an interesting corner in this dialogue because it, it's ironic that, as Dr. Thompson is pointing out, it is when there is that sense of openness and vulnerability uh, that God can use uh, that circumstance to bring about creation, to bring about certainly healing and restoration. But isn't it interesting how typically our response is that when when we become aware of our shame, it typically uh, drives us away from others. There is that sense that when it arises, um, we, we recognize that we're, we're a fearful of being exposed to others, but as Dr. Thompson points point out, it's just that very exposure to God himself that can bring about healing. How do we get over that hump? We'll talk about that next as our conversation continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dr. Kurt Thompson with us. He is the author of a new book called 
The Soul of Shame, Retelling the Stories We Believe About Ourselves, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Now, I'm curious, Doctor, just before the break, talking about this issue of our reactions to shame, it's curious that shame arises when one's sense of defects, in particular, are exposed to others. And yet, wouldn't it be curious that God, who already knows everything about us anyway, if we could somehow capture that sense of awareness and then be able to use it instead of being uh, repelled from God to see that that God died for us while we were yet sinners, understands us and who we are in all of our defects, and and rather than than allowing shame to to repel us from God, to rather propel us to God. How do we make that happen, though? Well, it's a great question, and I think fortunately we have uh, a very helpful model for us when we look in the Gospel of John in the 21st chapter, when we uh, read about the reinstatement of Peter. It's a well-known story that many of your listeners may be familiar with, in which Peter, after the resurrection, and of course after his betrayal of Jesus, swims to the shore, has breakfast, but then publicly Jesus essentially begins to ask him questions about whether or not Peter loves him. And of course this dialogue leads to Peter, and at one point uh, says that, and Peter was grieved in his heart that Jesus asked him yet a third time, do you love me? I think for me this story is instructive because it tells us a couple of things in general. One is that it was very clear that Jesus kind of, uh, one, can assume, one, one can imagine, uh, without of course having access to all that has been said that's not recorded in the Gospel around this story, one could imagine how easy it would be for Peter to still be wondering whether or not he has a place in this group, wondering not if he has a place, what that place is. And it's also interesting to me that Jesus did not go off at least to have a private conversation with Peter. It would appear that he starts to ask Peter these questions in front of other people. And what's striking also is that Jesus is not going to leave any stone unturned. There's not going to be any shame left in Peter that, that Jesus is going to allow for. And so he actually has a real encounter with Peter, asking him to really explore this issue. Do you really love me? Now, if it's me, there is the part of me that really wants to say, yes, of course I do, while I'm always remembering, well, of course, there is that part of me that apparently doesn't love you, otherwise I wouldn't have betrayed you. What's so striking then, in addition to this, is that Jesus calls Peter to pay attention to what is potentially shaming for him, but then immediately draws Peter's attention to his assignment of feeding his sheep, tending his lambs, of tending his sheep. And essentially, what's uh, important about this, even from an experiential and a community and neurobiological perspective, is that Peter's healing, Peter's reinstatement, is something that takes place in a real, embodied experience. He didn't just get some message from one of the other disciples that came in and said, hey, Peter, I talked to Jesus. He said, hey, that whole incident that happened the night you were, you know, I was crucified, we're cool about that. No, there is a direct encounter with a real person in which Peter really feels the difference, we would imagine, when he hears Jesus commission him, even in the face of knowing what his experience was like. In the same way, we live in a culture that, uh, in which we experience much of our faith knowledge uh, through listening to pastors, through reading scripture, and so forth. But it comes to us, as we like to say, it comes to us through our left brain. It comes to us through knowing things kind of logically and linearly and factually and so forth. That's a very different way of knowing than 
a real encounter with a real person who says, I know what you've done, and I still really want to hang out with you. Those kinds of encounters actually activate parts of our brain that are very different than the kind of encounter that we understand and that happens to us when we hear from someone the quote-unquote fact, as it were, that we are forgiven. It is in these direct encounters with real people in which our shame really is exposed that our neurobiological underpinnings of that shame can actually be transformed and changed. The possibility for creating new neural networks that we, in, in which we experience real release, in which we can remember looking in the face of my friend as I have made confession to him, and hearing my friend and remembering my friend say, Kurt, I am with you in this, even in the face of this thing that has happened. That is something that in terms of what I remember and what will actually have powerful impact on my life is going to be far more potent for me than just my hearing the fact that God loves me. And so one of the things that we encourage people to do is to really practice being in small communities of people who are practicing this, uh, this uh, effort of confession and forgiveness on a regular basis in order for us to have real experience that reinforces the very things that we read about in the scriptures, and so therefore live out the very nature of what St. Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, about what it means to live as, as part of the body of Christ. So when we're exhorted in scripture to confess our sins to one another and so fulfill the law of Christ, that there is that sense of, I think it was just suggesting here, that dynamic that's taking place that, that not only allows us to address the, the theological aspects of guilt and shame, as we've been delineating here, but as well as addressing all of this, the psychological ones and the need for that, 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 um, that horizontal level connectivity to have that experience, that community, so to speak, in order to experience what it's like to be forgiven. That's exactly right, uh, Craig. I mean, it's, it, I think it's, it's striking that, that Jesus said in the Gospel of John again, and they, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That our primary witness to the world about who Jesus is is embodied in the way we love one another. And a primary way in which we demonstrate love for one another is the way that we live with and demonstrate forgiveness for each other's foibles in which we demonstrate and live out what it means to be vulnerable, to be naked, and yet not, shame ha- not let shame have the talking stick in this space. We, in, in the book, we talk about this model of what we read about in the letter to the Hebrews, in which we read, therefore fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. If we're going to watch what Jesus does and do what he did, Jesus was someone who went to the cross. He went looking for shame. He didn't wait for shame to come to find him. He went looking for it in order for him to do the business with shame that needed to be done with it. And so one of the exercises that we give to people is to uh, begin to actually do an inventory of shame. Where are those places in which shame wants to hide out in your life? The more we are actually going to look for it, the less opportunity it has for hijacking our brains, literally, and our relationships catching us off guard. As we go to look for it and then tell others about this, 
we find ways to literally create new neural pathways, new neural networks that over time can begin to outpace our shame so that shame does not have the same kind of powerful influence in our lives. So that ultimately then that shame is not something that winds up driving this major wedge between God and ourselves, where we have this sense of diminished value, we convince ourselves God's made a mistake with us, things of this sort, uh, sort of that, uh, that warped view, that warped understanding of our relationship with God, uh, that damaged view that uh, so many people often uh, walk in, but rather to understand that that shame can... Um, bring about not just the the awareness that we are exposed, but then to allow that vulnerability to happen so that we can find healing and restoration. Because as I said before, shame, if treated in the proper fashion, if responded to in the proper fashion, like pain, can actually be an important alarm system that tells us there's something wrong that needs some attention in your life. Our conversation with Dr. Kurt Thompson, the book, The Soul of Shame, retelling the stories we believe about ourselves. It will be published by InterVarsity Press and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through the usual suspects, including Amazon.com. 